Well, amen. It is um, so good to be with you guys this morning, brothers and sisters of Providence North. Uh, as uh, I was introduced, my name is Matt Hodges. I'm the teaching pastor at a church in Cyprus that we planted about six years ago. Um, and uh, But although Cyprus is my, my place now, the Woodlands is actually my home. I grew up right down the road in Cochran's Crossing. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Kayla. We went to John Cooper together, high school sweethearts. Oh, I know, it's, yeah, that's the whole thing. Um, we were the exception, guys. We made it. But, uh, and fun fact, I actually grew up in Sean's student ministry. So Sean and I go way, way back. So if you need any like stories of youth pastor Sean, you just find me after happy. He's not here, so he can't stop me. Uh, it was good times with Sean. But in all seriousness, I just have to let y'all know. And again, he's not here. He doesn't know that I'm saying this. He did not slip me a 20 on the way in or anything how blessed you guys are to have Sean Eppers as y'all's pastor. And he is um, just an amazing man of God. He is a dear friend. He loves Jesus big. And he loves this church big. And even in the interactions that I get to have with him, with none of y'all around, he just is so captured by the vision that he has for this church body. Um, and it's contagious. And so I'm glad to be here as well. Uh, when I asked Sean what I was going to preach on, I didn't want to be the guest preacher who throws a wrench in the, the preaching calendar, right? I, we, that happens to us sometimes. And so I was like, hey, if you're going through a book, <clears throat> let me know what passage it is, a series, whatever it is. And he said, hey, we're going through a series on doctrine. You don't have to tackle it if you don't want to, but you're slotted for the resurrection. My, I got giddy. I got a little bit thrilled because the resurrection for me has been, if you can have a theological hobby horse, if you will, has been that. For a few years now, for me, um, I wrote a book on the resurrection because I was so encaptured by the centrality of it and the importance, and it was an apologetic of why you can believe it. And if there's one thing that just gets me up in the morning, it is the fact that Jesus is risen and that I want other people to know that. And I want, to know, I want them to know what that means for them because it is fundamentally, without a doubt, the most important claim in all of human history. The fact that a man, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross and then three days later gets up and walks out of the grave, it changed the course of history. It changes everything. It changes the course of eternity. It changes everything for you and I. It is, in a sense, really the central message of Christianity. That to be a Christian at its most basic level from day one at least, was to believe that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was risen. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, in the earliest days of Christianity, an apostle was first and foremost a man who claimed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. That's what it meant. To preach Christianity itself meant to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in Acts. So in the book of Acts, apostles are going out preaching and teaching Every single sermon is, Jesus is alive. <laughs> That's it. He says, the resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which Christians brought. From day one, to be a Christian at its most fundamental level was to believe that that man, Jesus of Nazareth, rose from the dead and that it changes everything for the course of eternity and for my life. 
Now, as we've progressed over the past 2,000 years, rather, I should say regressed, but as time has gone on, that message, that centrality, that objective historical claim of Jesus coming back from the dead has drifted a little bit from the center of what it means to be a Christian. And now, if you ask someone, hey, why are you a Christian? You may or may not get the resurrection as part of your answer. You may or may not have someone say, well, because I believe that a man came back from the dead and that therefore he is Lord of all. That is, of course, the most fundamental answer. But there are more and more today you can, well, I, I appreciate Jesus's teachings. I think, that he, I, I think that he gives me a sense of purpose. I think that he gives me even a personal relationship with God. And all those things are good. Those are good things to be sure but they are not the foundational claim of Christianity. And what has happened, sadly, lamentably, is that even nowadays, you can find more and more of a segment of the church, I say the church, that's probably up for debate, who actually don't even believe in the resurrection at all, who say, identify as Christians, but then say, well, you know, things like the resurrection, miracles like that, we, we've sort of progressed past that, we value the teachings and the principles and the purpose and the example. A poll in 2017 done by BBC Research found that 25% of the people who were asked, who identified as Christians, said that they did not believe that Jesus literally came back from the dead. One representative from the Church of England, she said this, she said, well, you're talking about adults here. An adult faith requires that it be constantly questioned, constantly reinterpreted, which incidentally is very much what modern church is actually about. Science, but also intellectual and philosophical thought has progressed. So to ask an adult to believe in the resurrection the way they did when they were at Sunday school simply won't do. Is she right? Well, Paul is going to say something different. And this brings us to our text this morning. I should have had you open to your Bibles before we got started. But if you do have your Bibles, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're gonna be in a few verses at the beginning, a few verses in the middle. So we're gonna camp out there. So as you're turning there, I wanna just sort of give you a roadmap for our morning. What I wanna do with our time this morning is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which has been touted as the resurrection chapter. This is probably the most comprehensive handling of the doctrine of the resurrection, both what it means and its implications and why we can believe it happened, all that stuff that we have in the New Testament. And what I want to look at is Paul's words and see not only, number one, why can we actually trust in the resurrection? How do we know that it happened? Can we have confidence? Is she... Right, this lady from the Church of England that, well, you know, science has progressed and philosophical thought has progressed. So do we really need something like a literal bodily resurrection to keep the faith or can we do with, without it? And then two, not only why can we believe in the resurrection, but why we must. Why must we believe in the resurrection of Jesus? So first, why can we? Why can we trust that this happened? Is there actually any grounds? Is there actually any evidence? Or is this sort of just part of the package? Hey, we're Christians now, we go to church. So yeah, I guess that means that we have to believe Jesus resurrected. But can we actually know? 
Well, Paul says in verses 3 through 6, so 1 Corinthians 3 through 6, I want to read this and unpack it. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What Paul does here in this argument for when he's talking about the resurrection is before he gets into the theology, before he gets into the implications, before he gets into the philosophy, before he gets into anything that it means, his first and most fundamental claim is we can believe that this happened, that this is a historical objective claim. So before he gets into theology, he's going, I'm going to talk about the historicity. I'm going to talk about the validity. I'm going to talk about the objectivity of this claim. And he says, for I delivered to you of first importance, the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? That Jesus was crucified and buried and that he rose. You and I, our faith, the foundation of it is rooted on a series of events that happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's the cornerstone of our faith. Things that happened in real space-time, in real history. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, this is an event. And he's begging to be fact-checked. Hey, Jesus appeared to this guy and those cats. And you know what? You can go ask him. And he's saying the people who saw Jesus after he was resurrected are still alive. Over 500 of them, they're still alive. He's not making this claim unless it's true. Because you know how easy it would be to just go ask them? Very easy. And they would go, resurrect? No, Jesus didn't come back from that. He's still in that tomb over there. And all of a sudden, Paul's entire argument falls apart. The only reason that he puts in this, hey, by the way, go fact check me, is if he's certain, is if it's true. Because I know that, again, modern people sometimes can look back at ancient people and we can think, okay, those ancients, right? Like they didn't really understand how the world worked. They weren't up to snuff. They didn't have cool things like we do, like microscopes and such. Maybe they just thought that like dead people came back to life. Maybe that was just part of their worldview. Maybe this was just an easy claim. People in the ancient world, they may not have understood everything that we understand about the natural world, but they knew that dead people stayed dead. They understood that very well. It's why Paul is saying, hey, I know this is going to be hard to believe. If this was an easy claim to make, he wouldn't be like, no, 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 trust me. He appeared to this guy, appeared to this guy, appeared to 500, go ask him. He, Paul understands how incredulous people would have been understands how difficult it would have been to believe that this happened. And he's making the claim only about 15 or 20 years after Jesus resurrected. So this is, again, in the lifetime. This is not hundreds of years later when 1 Corinthians was written within a generation. And he's saying, no, go ask. I'm rooting this in history and we can be confident that it happened. Now, what's amazing, though, is, is that as time went on, the evidence actually gets stronger, not weaker. 
As time progressed and as the church spread and as the gospel went forth, the evidence for the resurrection actually gets bolstered. So I want to just fly through real quick. So again, this was the product of like three years of research and a book and stuff, and I'm going to try and do it in a page. So hang with me. But I want to just give a couple bullet points, just some handles, right, to like hold on to as you're wrestling with this. Because, you know, Christians, I don't know if y'all at this, I doubt sometimes, right? Sometimes I struggle with doubt. And so it's nice to have some foundation to stand on and some objective things to point to. And so here's just a few that we see in the Bible and in history that we can know that there's no other explanation for these things other than a literal resurrection. The first and one of the most prominent is the resurrection accounts themselves. So in the end of the Gospels, you have every single Gospel. And this is really the only thing that you find in all four Gospels, by the way, is an account of Jesus' resurrection because it was the central claim. It was the thing that they all knew they had to get in there. Some, you know, only Matthew has this version of Sermon on the Mount. Only Luke has this prodigal son. But if you ask any of them, hey, what's the one thing that you need to make sure you get in there? It's the resurrection. And all of them end with the resurrection. And what is fascinating about every single one of those accounts is that they have women reported to have discovered the tomb of Jesus. Now, hopefully you're asking yourself, why is that fascinating? That seems normal. Not a problem, right? Good on you, right? That's a good impulse. It shouldn't be a big deal for us. Here is one of the ways that we've fortunately progressed past the ancient world. Back then, a woman's testimony was not even admittable in a court of law. If a woman saw someone kill another person, but she was the only person that saw it, there, it was as if there was no evidence. And so the gospel writers who are writing a little bit later, actually, like they've got some time to kind of get their story together. If they were making this up, none of them, none of them would have had women be the eyewitness to the empty tomb. Not a single one of them would have done that. And Paul, you have, who's written earlier, Paul's letter, you have 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't mention the women. He, he's, you know, Peter, and the, like, because it actually would have hurt the case. But when you get to the gospel writers, and they're going, we're going to report history. We're going to report this exactly as it happened. That's our task. We're not here to twist a story or to make a claim or anything. We're just going to report what happened. All four of them, separately and independently, have women as those who discovered the tomb of Jesus. And there's no reason they would have done that unless that's just how it happened. Unless Jesus actually resurrected and there was an empty tomb discovered. Because if you're fabricating that story in the ancient world, you lose all credibility if you have the tomb discovered by women. And yet, all four of them put that in there. So the gospel writers have this tension. They're like, wait, do we, do we want to make the strongest claim possible? Or do we just want to tell history how it happened? And they tell history how it happened. One of the other strongest apologetics for the resurrection is the person that we know as James. James, the author of the book of James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. And he became, next to Paul and Peter, really one of the prominent figures in the early church. One of, probably recognizes, maybe the most central leader, at least organizationally, in the early church. But what we know about James and the rest of Jesus' family is that during his earthly ministry, they didn't buy his whole Messiah thing. Which, you know, to be fair to them, what would your sibling have to do to convince you that you're the son of God? Probably a lot, 
He'll probably like come back from the dead. That's about, maybe there's a list of one thing. Maybe resurrect. If your sibling walked in the room one day, you know, around 33 years old, and he's like, all right, time to start my public ministry. Turns out I'm the Messiah. You're going like, oh, no, someone go get mom. (laughs) (sighs) Call the inpatient care, right? Like that's, you, you think that they've lost their mind. And they did. John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Which again, may sound harsh, but like we... I'm empathetic to that. I know my brothers. (laughs) If they came and said that they're the son of God, I'm like, no, I'm not going to, I don't believe that. And so what happened to have James go from, hey, no, Jesus, I don't buy it, to now I'm the most prominent leader in the church, giving my entire life all the way up until a martyr's death to spread your glory. What could do that? Well, the resurrection could do that. Some undeniable definitive proof that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be, that he actually was God, that he actually was divine. But James is not the only example of a changed life. He's maybe one of the most prominent because, again, he was in Jesus' family. But you go across all of the apostles, you have people who are scared, People who are frightened, people who are running away, people who are betraying Jesus, people who are confused. The depiction of the apostles in the gospels all the way up until the resurrection accounts is abysmal. They're cowards. They're frantic. They don't, I mean, look at Peter. Peter literally denies that he even knows Jesus the night before he was crucified. Why? Well, Peter was afraid of death. He he knew that by association, he could be crucified next to Jesus. And so, no, no, I don't know him because he was afraid of dying. And yet after the resurrection, you have Peter dying a martyr's death, being crucified, hung upside down because he said, I'm not even worthy to die the same death as my savior. What does that? Well, a, a belief that the person that you're, following actually can beat death. See, before the resurrection, all they had was words. They had some examples too, in the, but like when Jesus came back from the dead, they were like, okay. When Jesus says, I hold the keys to death and hell, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, his resurrection proved it. And now every single one of the apostles dies a martyr's death, giving everything that they had to give. They had nothing to gain from following Jesus if Jesus didn't come back from the dead. Nothing. They were, their proclamation that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is, had them stripped of their rights, had them stripped of their possessions, had them stripped of their comforts, had them stripped of their place in society. They lost everything, including their lives. You don't do that unless you're sure, unless you know that the person that you are following actually, objectively, can beat death itself. And this was the ripple effect that spread throughout the early church. This was the ripple effect that spread throughout the whole world. Tertullian, a church father, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
Now, what he meant by that was when people would see the way that Christians died for their faith, they converted on the spot. Said, I want that hope. Because here they are being thrown to the lions, singing hymns. Here they are being thrown into the gladiator rings with praise on their lips, being tortured and crucified, and yet doing so with an unshakable, unbreakable hope because they knew that their Savior had beaten death. They knew that death was not the end. They knew that there was no enemy now that could touch them. And that witness is what launched the spread of the church. And this is why all of their, there's a couple alternative theories thrown out for the resurrection. Okay, well, uh, historians, even secular historians admit, okay, they had to at least have believed that Jesus came back from the dead because there's no other explanation to why the church spread the way that it did. There's no other explanation for all of the objectively changed lives that we have documented, not just in the Bible, but in extra biblical texts as well, of all the apostles and how they died and what they did. There's no other reason for it. And so they start to go, okay, well, let's think about what could have happened. They say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body, right? That's what, and that's how they got people to believe that he resurrected. Problem is that doesn't account for the actual disciples. Not only could they not have, but let's just say a couple of ragtag fishermen did overthrow like the Roman military and pull this off. But even if they could have, why would they? Would you, would you give up everything that you had, your life, your possessions, your comforts, your status? Would you die a horrible martyr's death just to pull one over on people? Of course not. They believed actually that death could be beaten. That was what dr- drove them. And so, no, they did not steal the body. I mean, like imagine that conversation. Like one of them just walks up and goes, guys, got an idea. Let's convince people that Jesus resurrected. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, so here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna steal the body. We're not gonna gain anything from it. In fact, we're gonna have to give up really everything that we have, our lives, our families, and, and probably die a horrible death. You guys in? That doesn't convince anyone. That doesn't start a revolution. My, maybe my personal favorite of the alternative theories is, well, they went to the wrong tomb. That's, that's, there's a real published academic article that suggests that they just went to the wrong tomb. They forgot where he was buried. And again, I can just imagine right before it's like, I'm confessing Jesus as Lord. And they say, recant or burn at the stake. And they go, maybe I should have checked that out. Okay, maybe he wasn't alive. No, of course not. They were sure. They were confident. They knew that Jesus had resurrected and nothing else accounts for the life change that you see. Nothing else accounts for the spread of the church. Nothing else accounts for the accounts of the resurrection with the women. Nothing else accounts for James becoming the leader in the church that he is. Nothing. If Jesus didn't resurrect, actually resurrect, literally, physically, bodily, then following him didn't make any sense. It didn't do anything for them. And this is where Paul's argument in the text shifts from, okay, not only can we believe it, but we must. Why must we now today keep the resurrection central to our faith? Why must we make sure that we actually believe, okay, this happened, and it is the thing that we cling to as we walk and as we follow Jesus. It is the basis on which we trust and follow Jesus. 
Paul says in verses 14, 17, 18, and 19. So follow along. I'm going to read verse 14, then I'm going to skip down to 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul is reminding us, he's reminding the Corinthian church, he's reminding every reader of this letter that the reason that we follow Jesus and entrust our lives to him, it's not because he had the best teachings, though, though he did. It's not because he was the best moral example, though he was. The reason is, is because he is the only person in all of human history who have said, I'm going to die and then come back to life and then did. Like if you predict your own resurrection and then you pull it off, I'll follow you. I will. I will follow that man who can say, I'm going to go to the grave. I'm going to go to the cross to have the full weight of the world's sin, and it's going to crush me. And in my flesh, sin will be condemned, and you will be free from your sins, and I'm going to save you to eternal life, and I'm going to prove it by coming back from the dead. And then he does? All right, I'm all in. Otherwise, no shot. And that's Paul's point here. It's an all or nothing thing. The idea that you can just follow Jesus because you like his teachings is absurd. It makes no sense, logically or practically. Because here's the thing, the commands of Jesus, they're hard. You read the Gospels and you see what a life of following Jesus is. You see what self-denial is required. You see a life of self-sacrifice. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The first shall be last. Turn the other cheek. Give him your tunic also. Pray for your enemies. That kind of life makes no sense if Jesus didn't come back from the dead. And that's why Paul says, your faith is in vain. Why are you trusting him? Why would I be preaching that Christ is Lord and that you need to trust him if he doesn't have actual any authority to say any of that stuff. Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because look, if we're living a life as Christ followers, if we're living a life that is aimed at eternity, but death actually has the final say, well, then Paul's right. We should be pitied. I mean, that makes no sense at all. That we're living a life and we're saying, I'm doing everything, I'm reorienting my whole life over the belief that I'm going to have eternal life in Christ on the other side of glory. But if there's actually no eternity, then living a life aimed at it doesn't make any sense. He says, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. Essentially, those who have died are going to stay dead. Down in verse 33, 
This is one of those verses that just sort of shocks you every time you realize it's in your Bible. Verse 33, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus actually doesn't have a claim over the grave, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's Paul's big pastoral point. If you don't believe that Jesus actually got up out of the grave and what that means for you, then goodness, just make the most of your time here. Why bother with eternal things? Why bother with living for the glory of God and communion with him and the good of others? Look, if we've only got, you know, 85, 90 years here, if we're lucky, just make the most of it. You're going to be in the ground. It won't matter. People will forget you. And the sun will just blow up one day. And that's it. Figure out what makes you happy. Do that. If Jesus didn't walk out of the grave, man, Christianity is a waste of time. Following Jesus is a waste of time. Church? Church is a terrible hobby, guys. We can find something better. To, someone have a boat? If you have a boat, let me know. Like if, if Jesus is still on the ground, let's go on, get on a boat. Please don't tell Sean that the guest preacher said church is a terrible thing to do. It's not context, right? Just focus on all that stuff I said about him being awesome. And We trust in Jesus not because he had better ideas than Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. We trust in Jesus because those guys are still dead. And Jesus isn't. That is why we give our whole lives and allegiance to him. Because he, in rising from the dead, makes a claim of authority over the whole cosmos and said, hey, I'm in charge here. Even death, that's right, death itself doesn't have a hold on me. I stand over death. And where death has stood over every other person who has ever lived, Jesus says, not me. I'm actually the one who stands over all things. And because of that, you can trust me. You can follow me. You can actually give your life to me. Our greatest need is not just a better set of moral philosophies. Our greatest need is not just better teachings or better ways to make this life a little more bearable. Our greatest need is that sin means that we're going to die. And on your own, you're not getting out of the grave. But in Christ, you will. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking toward the crowd, he doesn't say, behold, the greatest moral teacher of our time. Behold, the greatest philosopher of our day. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our greatest problem is that our sin separates us from God and that the wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual. And we have no hope in that apart from Christ. We are helpless against it. We trust in Jesus because he's the only one who says, I'm more powerful than sin. 
I'm more powerful than death because the full weight of the world's sin came onto him on the cross and it crushed him. And then three days later, he said, that's not enough. He exhausted everything that death could throw at him. And he goes, oh, Sunday brunch. That's who we follow. And that's why we follow him. And this is why in verse 20, we're going to see Paul shift to that very hope. That Paul is saying, hey, look, here's the deal. Not only can we trust Jesus, not only must we, but in fact, it's the most glorious thing you can do. Paul uses a little word here, maybe my favorite word in the Bible. It's a strange word, but maybe I'll convince you too. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. First fruits was an agrarian term. So if you lived in an agrarian society like they did back then with lots of crops and stuff, you would know that. If you know like a farmer even today, they will use this term, first fruits. What first fruits were, were they were the first buddings of a harvest. And what you would do is you would examine the first fruits, and by looking at them, you would know what the rest of the harvest is going to look like. So if the first fruits were healthy, if the first blossoms, if the first fruit, if the first shoots of wheat, whatever it was, if they were healthy, if they were on time, you knew that the rest of the harvest would be too. If they were late, if they were sickly, if they didn't make it, then you knew that it was bad news for the rest of the harvest as well. They were the indicator. They were the preview. And so when Paul says that Christ in his resurrection is the first fruits of those who fall asleep, of those who die, what he's saying is, is that whatever is true of Jesus in his resurrection is true of you. If you are in him, if you have trusted in him, if you've given your life to him, then whatever is true of Jesus in his victory over death will also be true of you. Which means that you will be raised with a body glorified and eternal just like him. And it reminds us that the true hope of Christianity is not a spiritual, ethereal, disembodied existence. The real hope of Christianity is resurrection. It's getting out of the grave with a literal, physical, glorified body and living and dwelling on a literal, physical, glorified earth. That is what Jesus did. Jesus walked around after his resurrection. He kicked up real dust with real feet. He walked in and sat down and ate a real fish with his real friends who he then hugged with real arms. That's what Jesus' resurrection looks like, and so that's what our resurrection is going to look like. We are not aiming for pie in the sky in the clouds somewhere. God is remaking this earth and going to raise our bodies glorified and perfect forever, which means that resurrected life in the kingdom of God helps us take hold of the fact 
that there's nothing, nothing, nothing in this life that following Jesus will ever have you miss out on. Nothing. If a life of following Jesus means calling you to a life of self-sacrifice and self-denial, which it is, the resurrection hope that we have being raised to new life in a real new earth is the confidence that we have to say, it's worth it. It's worth it. There's nothing that you're ever going to miss. There's nothing that you could ever get the short end of the deal with. Because anything that you think that you have to get in now, you're going to have a hundredfold, thousandfold, millionfold times more with an eternity to enjoy it. And you'll do so in the presence of your creator. Free from sin and death. And when that sinks in, when that goes from here to here, that is the key to unlocking a life of self-sacrifice and self-denial and following Jesus. Because now, everything is worth it. Resurrection is not just something that points us to the future. It is the very hope by which we live in the present. As we follow Jesus, it's not just something we look forward to tomorrow. It's our strength today. That's why Paul says at the end of the chapter, I want to close with this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If this is true, if Jesus actually came back from the dead, if he's your first fruits, if you're aiming at a resurrection into eternity, therefore, press on. Don't lose heart. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that whatever you do in the name of following Jesus, it's not in vain. It never is. No matter what a life of following Jesus calls you to do, it's the hope of resurrection that makes it worth it. Because nothing can touch you. Death, though that was the last enemy that there was a verdict out on. And if you are in Christ, you have objective evidence, proof, concrete reality of a hope that says not even death can touch you. Not even death. So what do you have to fear? <laughs> like the apostles, you can follow Jesus with honestly reckless abandon because there's nothing that he will call you to that he does not protect you from. If you are in Christ, you hear nothing else this morning. If you are in Christ, the worst case scenario for you, worst case is a resurrected eternity in a new creation. That's as bad as it gets. Forever, with a glorified, perfect body, free from sin, free from death, free from decay, free from all the effects of sin, in the presence of your God, enjoying him and his gifts forever. That's the worst case scenario. That's what him being our first fruits means for us. D.A. Carson, I love this quote. He says, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. 
That is the posture of the Christian. And so if you are pursuing faithfulness through a chronic illness and clinging to hope and following Jesus, you have the hope of a resurrected, glorified body to enjoy forever, to keep you going. If you're pursuing a life of self-sacrifice, of bearing one another's burdens, of giving generously and abundantly, even though it means incurring a burden yourself. And there's some times where you're like, I don't even know if this is worth it. I could enjoy so many other things. I could do this with that time. I could do this. I go on this vacation. I could have so many more resources to use for me. It is the resurrection that keeps you going because there's nothing you'll ever miss out on. There's nothing that you'll ever get the short end of the deal on. If you're living a countercultural life that draws hardship and criticism, one day you will live in a new earth where everything is as it should be. And if you are grieving the loss of a loved one and trying to cling to Jesus in the midst of that, which I know can be so difficult, it is the hope of resurrection that keeps you going. You will hug with real arms in the kingdom of God. And you will have forever to spend there and enjoy his blessings. And just like the lives of the apostles and the early church, when that hope really does take root, when that hope sinks in, then your life actually becomes the strongest apologetic for the fact that Jesus is risen. Sure, I, I'll talk about the women at the tomb till they're, I'm blue in the face. And James and all the reasons why Paul's dating of this letter means this. And go, I can do that. But I would so much rather have more than any of that, a human being, a brother, sister in Christ who has allowed the hope of resurrection to set in and unleashed themselves to a life of self-sacrifice and self-denial for the glory of God because they know nothing can touch them. That is the strongest evidence there is for a risen Christ. And you then become that apologetic in your day to day as you bring the future hope of glory, the future hope of resurrection into the present and you let it fuel you. It's the wind in your sails. It's your compass. Words of my favorite hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, we trust you, and we thank you for the hope that we have in you and in you alone, the hope that you have made manifest and proven in your son, Jesus, whom you sent to die a death that we should have died. But God also then to beat death on our behalf. Thank you that he is our first fruits. The hope that we have, the hope that we cling to as we look ahead. God, we know, we confess that there are days when following you, living according to your statutes is difficult, is painful, is hard. God, help us cling to the hope 
that we have in Christ. The hope that we have of spending eternity with you raised to new life, enjoying you and a perfect creation forever. We love you, we praise you. We ask all of this in the name of our risen Savior, Lord Jesus. Amen.